Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, victims of domestic violence are often reluctant to report their attackers. But imagine if you call the police and they work with your abuser. I'm trapped. Like, he said no one's going to believe me and no one's going to help me. And, you know, and he's right. Plus, have you ever thought about how your bag of chips sounds when you rip it open at lunch? We'll introduce you to a designer who spent a lifetime thinking about the way things sound. So I'm a blind guy and I've uh, not had vision ever, but I've used my, uh, my other four senses a lot to just sort of engage and understand the world around me. And Father's Day is coming up and we want to know, is there a sound that reminds you of your dad? I'm Susie Racho, in for Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're going to start today's show with a story about relationships and the struggle to survive when it feels like you've got nowhere to turn. And a warning. This story contains some disturbing descriptions of assault. One afternoon, shortly after they started dating, Desiree Martinez was over at Kyle Pennington's house, hanging out in his pool. There was a bee and it was like kind of drowning. She says Kyle carefully plucked the insect out of the water. That is so sweet. If he can save a bee, like he would never hurt me. Then three months later, she made this call. 911, state your emergency. Um, hello? Never mind, it's okay, because I don't want to get him in trouble. Desiree now says Kyle pushed her down the stairs that night. But as you can hear, she wasn't sure about involving the police. If you know anything about domestic violence, you probably know that people who feel trapped and abused by their partners are often reluctant to come forward. But in this case, there was another factor. Okay, get who in trouble? My boyfriend, because he's a cop, but I don't want to get him in trouble. He's a cop? Kyle was a police officer in the small Central Valley town of Clovis. Today's story is about what can happen when the very people you'd call for help know and even work with your abuser. We have a woman who is begging these officers, saying, I'm scared of him. He choked me He in a hotel room. He uh, beat me. He's going to kill me. Desiree Martinez's case is currently being considered by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
their ruling could hold other officers accountable for failing to act when an abuser is one of their own. KQED's Suki Lewis brings us Desiree's story. When they first met, Desiree saw Kyle as a protector. He was a muscular 220 pounds with a military haircut. She was about 5'4", with brown eyes. She'd been in a violent relationship before, and the fact that he was in the military and a cop made her feel safe. He just treated me like a princess, and I was like, just like, oh my gosh, I've never been treated like this before. It was 2013. They'd been going out for a couple of weeks when someone broke into her apartment. Kyle suggested maybe she and her 16-year-old daughter should move in with him. He was like, your daughter will be safe. You and your daughter, what if they come back in the middle of the night and they come and they hurt you guys? Like, how will I know? Desiree says she stayed over at his place more and more. When he questioned the friends she was spending time with, it made sense. Maybe they were a bad influence. He knew exactly what he was doing. They were on a trip with another couple when she says he suddenly turned on her. Kyle and his buddy needed to go do some army training and brought their girlfriends along for a weekend out of town. But when they sat down to dinner after a day of army stuff for the guys and shopping for the girls, something was wrong. And I looked in his eyes and he just looked like a complete different person. Back in their hotel room after dinner, she says he accused her of cheating on him. He grabbed her phone, blocked her from leaving the room, and ripped the hotel phone out of the wall when she tried to call for help. He ripped my underwears off and tied me up with my own underwear. Desiree says later he apologized and he told her he loved her. But if she tried to leave to get help, he told her, Do you think anyone's going to believe you? I'm a police officer. Like, no one's going to believe you over me. You're going to hear a lot more about Kyle. We did talk to him for this story, and he says none of this happened the way Desiree says. But he didn't want to be recorded, so you won't hear his answer to these allegations. Later on, you will hear his voice, though, on a secret recording made at the time. Domestic violence cases often follow a predictable pattern. The aggressor sets it up so they can control their partner. Desiree now relied on Kyle for a place to live. She says he took her paychecks and tracked where she went using an app on her phone. It was always like having to account from where I was and what money I had and, you know, and I didn't have anything. He even alienated her from her daughter. The last place she had to turn when they got into an argument that she says got physical was the police. 911, state your emergency. Officers showed up at the house. Desiree spoke to a female cop. She came with an officer that knew Kyle, and they were really good friends, and he called him Chewy. In a whisper, Desiree told the woman about what had happened two weeks earlier on the trip. She says she hoped Kyle couldn't hear her from where he stood, just about 15 feet away. The officer got a recorder from the car and asked Desiree to tell her again what happened. She said it in front of him, and then he looked over at me, and I was all, nothing. You don't do that. The victim's not going to tell you anything. You're going to place the victim in more danger. Tom Walsh has been a cop for 41 years. We asked him for his take because he's been training other cops on how to conduct domestic violence investigations for decades. you got to separate them so they can't hear one another and see one another. Because the victim knows 
you know, when he gives me that look, uh, uh, the beating's going to be coming later. So, I mean, that's just standard, basic, simple police work. But for some reason, the officers didn't follow what Walsh says is protocol. The reports from this incident state that because Desiree seemed drunk and changed her story, there was no probable cause to arrest Kyle. As they went to leave, Desiree says she heard the female cop say something to Kyle. And the girl said, Kyle, what are you doing? You know you're already under investigation. Like, you need to, you know, watch yourself. Kyle was already under investigation because months earlier, his ex told the department that he kicked her, tried to throw her down the stairs, and raped her. There's not a lot of research on how often police officers abuse their partners or their kids. Walsh says he didn't realize how big a problem this was until other officers started coming to him, asking him how to deal with these kinds of cases. Unless you walked in the shoes of a cop, you're really not going to understand this. But it's shocking when you show up at someone's house that you get sent to, then all of a sudden you have a police officer on the other side of the door, and now they're a suspect who might be beating their girlfriend and their wife. And he saw cases like Desiree's going sideways, over and over again. Desiree says after police came and did nothing, she felt even less able to speak out to get help. She says Kyle told her if she talked, he would punish her. Then after that, he had um, pulled up these, like, videos and pictures from the military. Sorry. And there was these guys, and they were tied up the same way that he had tied me up. They were on their knees, and they had they were tied up, and they had, like, their eyes covered. And he was like, I'm not scared to kill anybody. And, like, and I will, you know, kill you and bury your body. Nobody will find you. I'll throw you in a ditch somewhere. And so at that point, I was just so scared, and I didn't know, like, how I was going to get out alive or anything. And then so, you know, I just kept trying to, like, figure out, like, how am I going to leave? A few days later, Desiree thought Kyle was going to follow through with these threats. She says she escaped their house through the garage. A neighbor called 911, and this time Desiree thought police would have to act. And then I just felt like, oh, such a relief, like, oh my gosh, like, it's over, it's done. Quietly, she described to a female officer how Kyle placed a pillow over her face and tried to choke her with her own arm. I was telling her, and she's just like, he's going to get arrested. But then a senior officer, Sergeant Fred Sanders, overruled her. He says, no, we're not. They're good people. I know the Penningtons, and we're not going to arrest them. These officers weren't from Clovis, Kyle Pennington's department, but from the neighboring town of Sanger, where his father was also a cop. Desiree says Sanders asked her to verify that the argument was just verbal. Kyle was standing right next to him, and I looked at Kyle, and Kyle's like, go ahead. And then I was like, it was just verbal. And he's like, okay. And then Kyle's like, go back inside the house now. And I had to walk all the way back to, like, where he, like, had tried to just try to kill me. Kyle spoke to the police for a few more minutes and then came back inside. Desiree says he dragged her by her hair into the next room where he beat, sexually degraded, and raped her. He said to get dressed, and that was it. And I just, like, was like, this, like, I'm trapped. Like, there's nothing, like, I, he, he said no one's going to believe me and no one's going to help me, and, you know, and he's right. 
Domestic violence investigator Tom Walsh says an abuser's fellow officers often can't see past the person they know from the station. He's very professional. He makes really good arrests. He writes really good reports. But this poor guy has a miserable home life. And they don't understand domestic violence enough to know that they're being manipulated by the batterer. Walsh realized the classes he was offering weren't enough. They needed specific training for dealing with officers who were suspects. So he created a program that he now teaches across the state. But those trainings aren't mandatory. In Desiree's case, a detective did follow up. Kyle was finally arrested and charged. When he bailed out, she promised him she hadn't told the police anything. Still, the police department suspended him, and then Kyle resigned. As the case progressed, Desiree found herself in the strange position of living with her abuser and going to battered women classes at night that the judge had ordered her to take. I thought, well, why do I have to take these? You know, like, I'm not, I'm not the one who's, like, in trouble. But I, I thank God that the judge ordered me to go because I was going to these classes and I was learning things that I, I didn't even know that was abuse. And Kyle stopped hitting her. Desiree says he didn't want her going to class with bruises. But then, the night she got her certificate, she says everything blew up again. And Kyle split her eye open with his fist. And I knew then, I felt like I had enough knowledge to, okay, well, this is wrong. Like, this is wrong, and I need to leave, and I need to get out of here, and I'm going to try one more time to reach for help. Kyle was arrested again. A former Clovis police officer is now facing additional charges after he was arrested for violating a restraining order. Only Action News was there today when Sanger police arrested Kyle Pennington this afternoon. Their final breakup when it came was messy, with accusations on both sides. But the upshot was Desiree moved out. After about eight months of abuse, she says she was broke and broken, but she was alive. Kyle went to trial in late 2013. He maintains that Desiree lied in court, that he never hurt her, and the only thing he's guilty of is trying to make the best of a bad relationship. But Desiree did share some pretty compelling proof in Kyle's own voice, telling her to stick with the story. He had to stick with the story to freaking get rid of this from moving and working out or something. You know, and our whole thing was verbal last night. This is from a secret recording she made, so someone would believe her that it wasn't just verbal, but physical. No, they're just going to think that I'm just some drunk, and I'm not a drunk. He tells her it doesn't matter what people think about her. It's better than them coming after me, don't you think? Police had access to these recordings Desiree made, in which Kyle admits to headbutting her, laying hands on her, and refusing to take her to the doctor. But the jury never heard those tapes. It's important to say here that despite allegations from Desiree and Kyle's other ex-girlfriend, he was never charged with rape. Kyle points out that his ex-wife of 15 years testified that he was never violent with her. Kyle was found guilty of violating a restraining order and pled no contest to misdemeanor domestic violence. Deputies allowed Pennington to hug his family members who came to support him. Then they took him to jail to serve a 30-day sentence. People tell me, too, they're like, well, it happened in 2013. Like, 
why are you still doing it? Like, why, you know, and it's, they want you to give up. What she's not giving up on is a lawsuit she filed in 2015 against not just Pennington, but also the other officers who she says violated her constitutional rights by failing to do their jobs, failing to help her. A federal court ruled those other officers couldn't be held accountable, but she appealed. Right now, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is considering whether those officers can be held accountable. If this court rules in her favor, it would create a legal precedent that could help protect other victims. That's why Desiree says she's still pushing it forward. Domestic violence investigator Tom Walsh says even that change won't be enough. He wants to get the issue of officer-involved domestic violence in front of lawmakers. Listen, you need to do something about this. This is out of control. He says the law needs to change to make it a crime to interfere with an officer-involved domestic violence investigation, not just for the responding cops, but for the whole chain of command. I'm talking about chiefs and sheriffs, deputy chiefs and commanders, or whatever rank you want to throw in there. Until they hold those people accountable, nothing's going to change. Desiree Martinez says she's still scared to be seen around Clovis. But she's working with a group of domestic violence survivors to let them know help is out there. I know how it felt when no one helped me and no one was there. So I just don't want anybody else to ever feel like they don't have anyone there to help them. If the Ninth Circuit rules in Desiree's favor, the officers involved in this case could go to trial within about a year. For the California Report, I'm Suki Lewis. If you feel unsafe in your relationship or are struggling with domestic violence, there are places to turn for help. We've got a list of resources for you on our website, californiareport.org. Companies think a lot about how their products look, but sound is also a big part of the branding. For instance, this sound might remind you of a particular kind of iced tea. And this one, of a particular kind of chip. Companies now sound design their products. They hire consultants like Hobie Wedler. He lives in Petaluma and has been blind since birth. He invited Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett from the podcast The World According to Sound to his house for a sonic demonstration. He started with one of his favorite products, a German household appliance. And if you've got the chance, you should listen to this story with headphones. One company that I, that I love is a company called Mila out of Germany. And listening to a Mila vacuum fire up is just a beautiful sound. So I'm a blind guy and I've uh, not had vision ever, but I've used my, uh, my other four senses a lot to just sort of engage and understand the world around me. Just like I visualize spaces, I have a sonic memory and I, I memorize sounds and how things sound when I'm around them. 
um, I want to show you another another box of uh, of product. This is a box of pasta that you might see there. What I love about it is the way that the seal comes down, and when you lift it up, it makes a nice pop. So you hear that ticking. It makes a very defined sound. So I have a bottle of water in my hand here. There are tines that actually go tick, 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 and pop open as you're opening that bottle. Do we want that click, 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 click when we open it? Do we want that when we open it? Or do we want the You don't really get the tick, 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 tick. You just hear boom, boom. It's more, it's less of a thunk yeah. and more of a When you open this, you can feel, you can really feel those tines releasing as you lift the top off of that sour cream. I never really thought about the sound that my water bottle makes every time I open it. But Hopi Wedler doesn't just work on opening sounds. He also works with clients on how products sound when they close. That's especially important when it comes to doors. Wedler works with hotels and car manufacturers. He showed Chris and Sam doors in his house, and then they listened to all sorts of doors. It has a finality to it, and when it's shut and we tap it, it's still fairly hollow. So I'm going to show you three different doors and how they sound differently. A big deal is how doors sound when they shut. Hobie's job is to pay attention to sound. But even when he's not working, he's always listening. At the end of the visit with Sam and Chris, Hobie told them about one of his favorite sounds. I grew up uh, spending some of my summers at my family's uh, small cabin up on a little lake just south of Lake Tahoe called Fallen Leaf Lake. And around Fallen Leaf Lake, not only are beautiful pine forests that the wind blows through, but also aspen trees. And aspen trees in the fall have leaves that are soon going to fall off the tree, but they rattle and shake. The best imitation I can give of that is...
That story comes to us from a partnership with the podcast The World According to Sound and The Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired in San Francisco, with additional support from California Humanities. Over the next few months, we'll be bringing you more stories that help us reimagine California in the rich way blind people experience it every day. So my dad was a tinkerer. He built himself his own tool shed, and he even made my sister and me a pink playhouse in our backyard. So the sound of a hammer always reminds me of him. And with Father's Day coming up on June 16th, we want to know, what sound reminds you of your dad or your grandfather? Is it a baseball hitting a glove? Maybe it's a sizzling barbecue or his favorite song. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and the sound that reminds me the most of my dad is the sound of a cocktail being made. You know, the sound of the ice kind of rattling around in a cocktail shaker. And it's because he makes himself a martini just about every night of the week. So I grew up just hearing that sound. It was kind of the sign that the workday was over and it was time to kick back and relax. I'm Victoria Mauleon, and the sound that reminds me of my father is the sound of an old typewriter. He was a professor and a poet, and he would spend hours clacking away on that old machine with his two index fingers, translating some obscure Latin poet into Spanish. And often after dinner, I'd be up late doing homework, and he'd be typing away at his desk, and it felt so comforting to have him there. And I really miss him. And I missed that sound. My name is Erica Cruz Guevara. Uh, the sound that reminds me of my grandpa is the sound of bossa nova. My grandpa's a jazz musician. He plays the bass. And I remember growing up with him as a kid, I used to wake up to the sound of him blasting bossa nova and jazz on his record player. My name is Scott Schaefer, and the sound that reminds me of my father is coins jingling in his pocket. My father was nicknamed Beaver. Everybody called him Beaver. He was a uh, small businessman, and at one time he owned a lot of vending machines, like uh, cigarette machines, jukeboxes, snack machines, pinball machines in bowling alleys and bars. And he would empty the coins out of uh, those machines, and most of the coins would go into a bag uh, to take to the bank. But he always had coins in his pocket. And if he was worried about something, which he often was, uh, he would take some of those coins and take them out of his pocket and just kind of like rub some quarters together. That's another sound that reminds me of him. I'm Rachel Myro, and the sound that reminds me of my dad is the music he wrote for the opening montage of the 1973 classic movie, Soylent Green. Other people may think of Charlton Heston or urban dystopia when they see that scene, but I hear that distinctive blend of symphonic grandeur and folksy Americana, and I think, Dad! <laughs> Every time. Oh, man. I'm tearing up now.
Call us at 415-830-6580 and leave us a message telling us a little bit about the sound that reminds you of your dad. That's 415-830-6580. You might hear it on our Father's Day show. That's the California Report magazine, your weekend storytelling show from the California Report. You can listen to all of our shows if you subscribe to our podcast. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Rob Spate and Katie McMurrin. Peter Arcuni directed the show this week. Our senior editor is Victoria Malion. The California Report's editorial team includes Alex Emsley, Asala Sanapur, David Marks, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Susie Racho. Sasha Coca returns next week. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. College Futures Foundation, more graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.